Nice to see Ludmilla Marlova once again. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank Good you. Good to have you here. So we've got some questions coming in for you. If you do have a question for Ludmilla, this is a free and open uh, understanding property and or legal hours. So general legal questions. We'd rather keep HR, human resources, job-related questions for tomorrow. You'll back here tomorrow for Career Connect, aren't Indeed you? Indeed I am. We just can't get rid of you. Um, for better or for worse. I don't know why I left that hanging in <laughs> the air there for a moment. But anyway. That was too much of a pause. Let's make our, we can make a little bed for <laughs> on that sofa. A little you can basket. You stay here until tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, I think Get you could comfy. do better. You do have an option. <laughs> <laughs> you believe me, you do. It'll be fine. Uh, but Lamilla's here tomorrow for that with David McKenzie from McKenzie Jones. So we'll keep the HR stuff to one side. Legal questions today. As I keep saying, I've not seen you stumped yet. I'm living in hope that one day do we not may see jinx you stumped. Please, Tim. <laughs> Completely not. Um, let me ask you first of all, though. It seems like every week you come here on a Monday, and we are starting these days with a value-added tax update. And you came in and said. Got some news for you. Well, indeed, uh, these are news that came out on the back of an event that was held by the Ministry of Finance Mm -hmm. uh, on March 21st, where the authorities went through a few guidelines. Once again, we're at the point of only guidelines at this point in terms of what this VAT regime will look like. Uh, Just for clarification purposes, not much has changed since last uh, last update last week in terms of the actual law. The law has not yet been introduced, uh, but according to the Ministry of finance there will be a law that will be passed sometime this summer uh, and after the law there will be guidelines or regulations that will be introduced afterwards of the bylaws which um, often happens here so but at this point all we're doing right now is still just commenting on the comments we're receiving from the Ministry of Finance and other uh, other experts in the industry. So with regards to the la- latest update, what we do know, uh, that is, um, for example, there will be cer- certain industries, which we already talked about, that will be subject to what's called the 0% rate, uh, which is different from actually being exempt. And I don't want to get into too many nuances because it can get fairly complicated, but there's a difference between being exempt from VAT and actually having to pay a 0 percent rate so there is a difference but it could be a little too technical for at least for this um, level update if the listeners do want to find out more we can ask me or answer that question probably um, throughout the show now with regards to some of the industries well the healthcare and education will be subject to what's called a zero percent tax uh, and certain uh, list of medicines and medical equipment will also be subject to the same 0% tax, but the list of the medicine and the equipment are, are yet uh, or has not yet been released. Uh, with regards to property, which is most important and I guess most most interesting, most relevant because um, a lot of the, you know, this used to be the, uh, so the real estate hour, so we have mm-hmm. received a lot of questions related to property. Now, the clarification from the Ministry of Finance at this point is that the supplies of commercial property, and that includes sales and leases, will be subject to the standard rate of VAT. Now, what that means is, for example, anything to do with commercial real estate, so rental of um, offices uh, or sale or purchase of, of offices will be subject to the 5%. Now, let's just uh, con- to contextualize it. For example, I rent an office. Uh, I, as a tenant, will have to pay the 5% uh, rate from my annual uh, rent, for example, to the landlord, and the landlord will be acting as a collector of the VAT for the government. Uh, so commercial real estate will be subject to VAT. And now residential, however, will not, at least for now. Uh, 
Except, except the brand new properties. So, for example, let's say if there is a brand new building that's being released, at that point, that building will be subject to the 5% VAT because that's sort of the value add to the economy, if you will. Is that if you purchase a property as well or just for renting? It's just, it's for brand new property. Uh, but not, if you purchase one of those properties? Correct. It's yeah. just if you're purchasing. That's yeah, right. Okay, that's yeah. just for purchasing. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, any kind of residential real estate is, is exempt. So, uh, uh, tenants and the landlords of residential real estate will not need to uh, pay VAT either for rental or for um, sale of property unless it's a brand new property. Okay, so uh, what about people who uh, bought a property a few years ago it hasn't yet been delivered? Do, do you add in, have any clarity question. on that? Uh, great question. Uh, most likely, well, again, we don't have this the, that kind of level of right. nuance of granularity just because the laws have not been published, but given, uh, given how some of these introductions, such as, for example, the increase of, in the uh, DLD registration fee have played out in the past, I would, I would suspect that uh, those new properties will be subject to the, the, to the additional 5% VAT once they are delivered. Just like, for example, those properties um, which, um, I guess, were sold off plan years ago before the registration fee went from 2% to 4%, mm. uh, those properties, once they were actually delivered, the investors had to pay the 4% mm. versus the 2%, even though in many cases they felt quite aggrieved because the properties were delayed by many yeah. years. I mean, that is harsh if it's been delayed, isn't it? Because you're suddenly spending a lot more. Uh, Indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, just in all fairness, most of the agreements uh, for investment agreements or, or property agreements uh, have always had a clause in there that you know, should there be a tax or some kind of a, a government fee that would be levied later in, in the future, it will be the responsibility of, let's say, the investor to pay it. So at least theoretically, some, uh, some should have been prepared that, that this might happen. Okay, so the things we don't know at the moment, this is just what you have learned from this seminar. Indeed, but right. now let me just, uh, just tell you a few more tidbits of what may be relevant. Uh, certain things such as li- life insurance will be exempt, uh, but non-life insurance products will be subject to the standard uh, rate of VAT. What we don't know is, for example, health insurance, because as we now all know, uh, all businesses have to provide health insurance to their employees. We do not quite know whether health insurance will be subject to this additional VAT. Because health insurance, by at least some account, is part of the health industry, which is subject to the zero percent tax rate. But on the other hand, according to these guidelines, the non-life insurance uh, products are also subject to the standard rate. So we're not sure if health insurance will be qualified as this non-life insurance product or as part of the health mm. industry. So yet to be determined. Some of the other products, such as investment in gold, silver, and platinum, will be at zero percent rate. Now, supplies of local transport, such as taxi, buses, trains, will be exempt. And this is the big one. With regards to the free zone companies, uh, it is yet to be determined whether the free zone companies and their businesses will be subject to the VAT. Theoretically, because free zones have been historically defined as tax-free, as not being subject to tax. However, this particular issue is still being discussed, so we should not be surprised if, um, if, if ultimately they will also be subject. And finally, I guess two more things. And one, the feasibility of tourist refund scheme is still being consi- considered, which means, uh, uh, for example, unlike well, like in Europe, when a non-resident purchases something when they exit the country or the, the zone, um, they qualify for the refund. Here, that particular refund scheme is, is still being considered, so it's not a sure thing. And I guess the, um, the just for those who do not know, the VAT right now is um, at five percent, which is the lowest one in the world still today. And then finally, the uh, the returns will have to be done quarterly.
Okay. So uh, there it is, January 2018. Mm, Lots of interest in this topic. Two messages actually relating to something you did just mention there, Ludmilla, so it's worth reiterating. Uh, Rian and Mohammed both ask, does that uh, uh, office rental um, f- uh, VAT apply to the free zone offices? And I'm assuming that, as you just said, there's not clarity on that yet. We're waiting to find out if free zones will be included. Indeed, especially because in in Dubai, Dubai has the greatest number of free zones. So it will be quite interesting to see whether they're included and if so, at which stage perhaps it will be a a gradual transition. But um, that's a point that we will continue to provide updates as more clarity becomes available. All right, questions for Ludmilla today. Text them on 4001. Call us on 423-1010. It'd be good to get you on. If you do have a question, you want some clarity on lots and lots of questions coming in. Lots of questions coming in about VAT. This all still has to be ratified. These are initial discussions, but some clarity, uh, Ludmilla, and we appreciate you uh, giving us that there. Ludmilla Mulliver is here through 6 o'clock questions. Send them in. It is Understanding Property, but it is a much wider legal hour. Get in touch. This is Drive Live on Dubai Eye 103.8. Drive Live, Ludmilla Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Plethka. Understanding Property ostensibly it has now widened to a more general legal hour however job related career related hr related uh, legal questions will you uh, leave until tomorrow it is career connect miller is going to be back tomorrow with david mckenzie from uh, mckenzie jones uh, let's go straight to the text line claire a couple of texts in from fitzpatrick yeah there's lots coming in but fitzpatrick has asked miller um, in light of the building a very topical one here in light of the building under construction that just had the fire um, is is there a law that ensures that there's some sort of insurance on buildings under construction? And will investors be expected to pay more as a result of a fire? And if there's a delay in handover as a result of this, will the developer have to pay penalty fees? Great question. And I guess the, the short answer to it is that there is no law right now that requires for a building under construction to uh, to actually be insured. There's no law per se. Um, so therefore, I mean, everything else, the rest of the questions sort of stem from that. So if there's no law, there is no breach of law if the, the developer has not taken insurance. Um, however, increasingly so because of the many incidents we've experienced over the last several years, uh, it is becoming more of a practice for developers uh, to have insurance. Uh, but you see, in, in just having insurance alone is not uh, is not the end of, of the matter. It's, it's more the scope of insurance that's really important because there have been a number of buildings before that have claimed insurance, for example, in the event of fires. And uh, from what we have learned is that in many of those cases the the scope of their insurance was quite limited uh, so therefore it, the coverage just was not enough for example to um, to compensate the various parties uh, that were affected by you know by, by the fire for example so I think the two the the two issues here is one taking insurance and then two just m- inc- uh, making sure that the scope of the insurance is wide enough to uh, you know, to account for various eventualities when you deal with people who have been subject to a fire in one of the towers here, for example, people who have, I don't know, home contents insurance, different insurances, what's been your experience in terms of the coverage? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer slightly differently first, and that is it is very uncommon for tenants here, for example, to have content insurance. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is not so in, in many other jurisdictions, and we've actually talked on, on the show a lot over the last many years recommending that... Um, it becomes more of a common practice uh, just because whenever a, a disaster or tragedy like that does happen, it's uh, having insurance coverage allows for that much uh, sort of that compensation much swiftly than, for example, going through court. Uh, so yet 
at this point, we still do not see uh, you know, an inordinate, at least, increase in content insurance. So that's that's number one. However, what is becoming more uh, more common is, for example, for landlords to include a clause in their lease agreement, uh, requiring not necessarily requiring, but clearly stating that any kind of content in, uh, is the responsibility of the tenant, and therefore, should they want to take insurance, it's their responsibility. So, therefore, if if there is a disaster that does strike, that uh, relying on this clause, the developer will not or the landlord will not have to compensate the tenant uh, for the for example damage to their content so just as a word of advice it it is highly advisable to um, to to consider taking uh, content insurance and in terms of coverage and I will tell you this is not so much my experience is not so much related to the content insurance but uh, insurance coverage in general which is really important is to actually read the fine print or the read the coverage because often what happens is that no one really wants to deal with the sort of pages and pages of, of you know, terms and conditions and so therefore often what we find is people just sign off to this insurance coverage expecting that it covers whatever it is that they think it will cover or relying which is more dangerous relying on representations of, of agents mm. but it's very important to actually read and make sure that those uh, representations that you are heavily relying on are actually included in the coverage because often what we, ha- what we see is that people People are surprised that insurance coverage does not cover some of the basic things that they were expecting it would cover. This is the thing, though, isn't it? Who, whoever reads a manual when they buy a new car? Whoever reads the contract when they sign for their new apartment? Who reads the contract for the insurance agreement they've signed? Uh, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question, yeah, but I mean well, it's so important. Well, exactly. So I'll give you an example. Right now we're dealing with a client who um, who is claiming from the health insurance coverage for a physical therapy bill. And insurance clearly states that physical therapy is 100% reimbursed. However, alternative therapy is not. Mm. Now, this particular physical therapy clinic that the client went to actually is licensed as physical therapy slash alternative medicine. So therefore, the stamp on the, uh, on the receipt actually bears both names or both phrases, physical therapy and alternative medicine. And so on the basis of that stamp alone, the insurance, co- the insurance company decided to reject the claim uh, without wanting to look into the details of the actual, the actual treatment. So, I mean, these are some of the examples that, that happen. And this is why my recommendation is just, number one, make sure that you understand what, what, you, uh, what you're signing and that some of the more important things that you're relying on are clearly included in the, uh, in the contract itself. And number two, uh, don't, don't afraid to fight back. So, so you often we see these kind of incidents, and if you uh, if you actually go back and challenge the insurance company's decision, they will reconsider. Is that true? I've heard that that you know don't take their first answer, uh, at, you know, because they'll often look for a loophole, and if you push them on it, they could change uh, their mind. For sure, and and there's also an insurance. Um, basic complaint department, if you will, a health insurance complaint department, uh, which has been quite effective uh, uh, historically. And this is this was introduced about two years ago. So when everything else fails, when the insurance companies do not respond or do not um, do not understand your claim, and that's the insurance committee is, is one that you can appeal to, and they have been quite effective in the past resolving some of these nuances. That's good to know. There's a, there's a question here on uh, back to VAT, Ludmilla. Will mortgages be subject to VAT? That is not in um, in these regulations, so do not know yet. But but there is something about certain financial 
financial services will be subject to a narrow exemption model. Uh, fee-based financial services will generally be subject to the standard rate of VAT. So there is there is a possibility that certain financial services and mortgages being considered as, as one of those services could be exempt, but um, we need more details on it. And mortgages usually got VAT on them. I mean, in other countries that have VAT, is there VAT on mortgages? Do you know, I, to be honest with you, I, until until today I have not been a VAT <laughs> expert, expert, but I am. <laughs> you're quickly, I am you're quickly becoming become so. Yeah. yeah, well, we all need to, I think, don't we? <laughs> you are actually our VAT expert these days, I'll tell you. It's interesting, though, because there are so many questions coming here. There's so much need uh, for clarification. That's the point. Shop if I could just make one before we go to break, there is one sure. question about the penalty. So the penalty is 500% over the owed amount. So let's say if you owe 10,000 uh, dirhams in VAT, so then that will be t- that times five. So that's the penalty. If you fail to pay something that you were meant to pay. Indeed. Okay. Yes. Okay. It will be collected quarterly. Oh, right then. That's uh, a few of the bits and pieces that we're going to be discussing on Understanding Property. Our legal hour, more general legal hour today. If you do have a question, uh, forward Miller, get in touch on 423-1010 or 4001. You can call in uh, or text in. If you do text in, please put your name uh, on there so that we know exactly who you are. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live. Only on Dubai Eye. 103.8. 103.8. Ludmilla Yamalabru is here on our legal property hour, our legal hour. There are so many questions uh, here for you, Ludmilla. I wanted to come back to VAT for a moment because you are beginning to learn a lot more about the impending VAT uh, implications, if that's the right way to put it. Somebody observes VAT will bring a lot of business for accountants. That it will. Indeed. I suppose. Um, one more thing. Bob texted in a little while ago. Let me find it uh, here saying, uh, is this 5% on residential property? This is new property, isn't it, that you were uh, clarifying as well earlier on, in addition to land registry fees? Exactly. So it's for all the brand new properties that are being released on the market for the first time. There will be an additional 5% VAT that will have to be collected by the developer uh, and paid to the government. So just for all those purchaser purchasers or investors who will be buying new property after the law comes into effect, just bear that in mind because this will be in addition to the 4% registration fee to the government. Okay. Tell our in says, nice words. Thank you for the legal program. Excellent to the point. That's Euled Miller. Do health services attract VAT, also our free zones included. Tell I'll obviously missed a couple of things. Let's just uh, run through that very briefly. Uh, sure, yes. A zero, a zero rate of VAT will be applied to both healthcare and education services. Uh, and uh, maybe at this point I can try to delve into a little bit of, uh, of the difference between exemption and zero percent rate. Uh, so the fo- for the healthcare, originally um, there was a statement made that the healthcare industry, including uh, and education industry, would be exempt from VAT. However, uh, being exempt from VAT VAT actually would result as a cost to a business uh, making such service. So it's actually more expensive than actually being subject to a 0% rate. So now let me give you a specific example. So let's say um, I'm the hospital and I buy uh, I buy furniture from uh, for the hospital from Tim. So I have to pay, as a hospital, I have to pay the 5% rate, uh, but I cannot pass it on to the, uh, to the, con- or to the patients. Uh, so if I were exempt from the VAT, I would still have to pay the 5% on that furniture to Tim, for example, but I wouldn't be 
able to pass it on to my patient mm-hmm. uh, patients. But with zero percent rate, this means that while I have to pay the five percent for uh, for the furniture, then I can apply to the government for the refund of the five percent. So all the so the healthcare services and the education services will be subject to that zero percent rate. So that's the difference between zero percent and exemption. So, but back to the listener's question: Yes, uh, healthcare services will be exempt uh, with regards to the free zones. Uh, whether they included in the VAT yet to be decided. All right, then. Let's go to some of the questions that are coming on the text line. We'll come to your uh, one point that you wanted to uh, run through in a short while. Is it possible, no name on this, for two people to come own property legally? A friend, for example. If so, what are the limitations with regard to selling a co-owned property? Uh, great question. Yes, it is possible. And not only that, it's possible to decide between the uh, the investors the percentage of the ownership. So it does not have to be 50-50. It could be, let's say, 80% or 80-20 and such. And so that will be reflected on the title deed, um, the percentage of the ownership. Now, with regards to limitations, and I guess more importantly, just um, understanding of what it means to own jointly, is that in order to sell that property, you will need the consent of the co-owner. Uh, so it's not possible, for example, to sell your share to someone else without the sign-off of the co-owner so that co-investor will always have to sign off uh, for the sale or the transfer of shares. Okay, question to Lord Miller. And by the way, I'm sorry, so it is not required because there was a back, uh, back in the old days, there was a, uh, at least a, 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 an assumption that only people that are related could own properties together, but that's not required. So two full unrelated parties could be co-owners. Okay, that's the answer to that. We've got more questions coming in on the text line. We'll come back to mm-hmm. those in a moment. Uh, one point that you wanted to make is a local media report. Claire, you've got uh, the details. Yeah, this is that. a really intriguing one. There's a new scam, Lord Miller, that you brought to our attention, targeting UAE residents and using um, the DFSA, uh, the Dubai Financial Services Authority, as a cover to to fool unsuspecting people. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. so this was a recent scam that was reported in the local media about a company that was ultimately trying to solicit uh, investment of funds or transfer of funds uh, to uh, to the company uh, relying on fraudulent representations of actually being a, a properly licensed um, financial services company and in particular having a stamp of the fraudulent stamp obviously of the Dubai Financial Services Authority uh, and uh, the so the the crux of the the scheme was that uh, you in, basically invest with us fifteen thousand dirhams and you will f- get far greater returns. Well, as it turns out, the company is does not exist and the DFSA stamp and the logo is is all fraudulently uh, um, fixed. So therefore, it truly is a proper scam. Now, why I wanted to just quickly uh, dive into this particular um, scam story is because there have been a number of similar uh, s- similar cases with regards to landlords, for example, in the past. <coughs> Uh, and uh, and other similar, especially anytime there's money that's changing hands, there's always you know, risk of some sort of a scam going on. So just what I wanted to do is just to give maybe a, a quick list of some of the things that uh, that anybody who ever wants to part with their money um, should do. <laughs> and that is, uh, in short terms, and this is sort of a legal term, is to do your due diligence. Well, due diligence maybe so- sounds like a fancy term, but really all it means is do your research, understand who you're dealing with. Uh, so do not just rely on what the that particular document says. So, for example, in this case, it said you were a financial services company and we're licensed by DFSA. Always request the underlying document, the supporting documents that would substantiate, for example, that particular corporate structure. So, in this case, you would want to uh, to see the uh, the license of this 
company number one and you and also don't just have a copy of the license I should look at the license make sure that for example the licensing activities that are that are mentioned in the license um, are the licensing activities that allow for that business to do that kind of uh, to conduct that kind of activity such as collect funds because anything to do with financial services in particular collecting money requires very high regulatory approvals so make sure that the license actually includes um, those activities um, that's that's one uh, so get the license and also uh, look at the activity and also make sure that the people that are representing uh, the company actually are authorized to represent the company and to buy the company, buy the company. And that is a, a more... I guess a more kind of complex uh, exercise, but in general, make sure that, for example, if it's not if it's a manager that's listed on the title, then they by default they usually have the right to uh, to bind the company. But if it's not somebody that's listed on the license itself, make sure that you've looked at the documents, the underlying documents that actually give that person authority. And just a simple authorization letter from the company will not suffice. So it would either have to be a board resolution or shareholder resolution or some kind of power of attorney that's properly or legally attested. So just make sure that A, you know who the company is that, you, that, that you're dealing with, um, and then B, also the person that's allegedly binding that company actually is authorized to do so, and, and C, the agreement, the underlying agreement that you sign, make sure that you understand uh, you know, the, the terms of what you're doing. In other words, okay, you give X amount of money, and you will be receiving a, a you know, interest or refund within what period of time and the most importantly whenever you're dealing with money just think about what are the guarantees yeah. so what, what I mean what will you do in the event this particular deal does not come through what what document you'll be relying on and what guarantees you may have to be able to rely on isn't, isn't the rule of thumb as well if no, it sounds on. too good to be true That's it exactly probably is sorry but I mean is it, why would somebody give you six point uh, sorry 29 million dirhams in exchange for whatever it was I mean maybe they're just very friendly I don't know well, but well, I mean. yes and, but the thing is you see this is where the uh, I guess the, the mind trick comes in when somebody represents that they are licensed by DFSA and, and that they are and then also the, you know, this particular article includes some of the language that they use a very colourful language we're pleased to uh, you know, to uh, inform you that we have been properly uh, regulated and that we meet all the rules and regulations and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, and here's a DFSA stamp and logo, I guess, depending on who <laughs> who talks the talk, it could be quite convincing. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Some fraudsters are simply very good. And it's not a dodgily photocopied logo bunged in uh, without thought. Some things look really, really good on paper. That's right. You've got to be so careful. Yeah, I mean, yes. There All are right. some professional fraudsters out there. Okay. Uh, that's a good point. We're going to talk to Joy. He has a question about uh, ending a rent contract early. Uh, penalties uh, with regard to that in a few moments' time. Any legal questions for Ludmila Yamalova from Yamalova and Pleska? Get in touch. 423-1010 is the phone number. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I 1038 FM. That's right. Live our legal hour uh, today on the program. Lots and lots of text coming in. Let me just very quickly go to Sam's text. Sam says, simple reason, slow moving traffic on the E311. One word, trucks. A lot of big container trucks on the last two lanes blocking all the exits along the 311, which is affecting movement of traffic uh, in the faster lanes, as you would expect uh, as well. Plus the extra care, extra concentration, people slowing down uh, to account for that. Sam, appreciate the text. And that's what we know. No other reports of anything else on the roads. If there is something, 4001 uh, or via the free app to get in touch. Let's quickly go to the phone lines before we go uh, any further. I think Joy uh, should be on the line. Joy, appreciate you joining hey. us. Good to have you on. 
thank you so much. Uh, look, you have a question about, let me see, ending a rent contract early, penalties. Put your question to Ludmilla, Joy, if you would. Yes. What I was trying to ask uh, is that I live in charge at the moment, and I got a new job, and I've decided to move to Dubai. Uh, so I, uh, my agreement is until August, and I've given them, you know, I gave them a call to the landlord to check, you know, what are the procedures, and uh, they tell me that I need to give them two months' notice, which is fine. But on top of that, I need to give a uh, two months' rent as well. So I was wondering. That is how it works, and, and and the lady at the office tells me that this is what the Sharjah municipality rules are. So okay. I want to clarify. All right. Uh, sure, I, I'll be honest with you, Joy. I do not. Uh, I'm not as intimately in, I guess, versed in the Sharjah municipality rules, the Sharjah real estate laws, as I am in, with Dubai laws. Uh, but logically and from experience, I will tell you this: so, if the contract, most of this is contractual driven. So, I have not seen laws that, or laws or regulations that set an early termination penalty uh, or default uh, early termination uh, penalty by way of a regulation. Most of the time, that particular clause or that particular term is left for the parties to decide so therefore it would be up to whatever is in the contract so it sounds like in the contract it may there may be a two-month early termination penalty or notice that's already mentioned usually when there is a notice uh, that notice is often used as a as an early termination uh, penalty so it's one and the same I would highly I, I would I would doubt that there is a law in charge that um, that mandates some sort of a, a mandatory penalty uh, but uh, just with that caveat, I'm not as intimately, uh, uh, I guess, versed in the Sharjah laws as I am in Dubai. But it sounds very suspicious. So I would double check with Sharjah municipality. Joy, when did you last check your rental contract? do that again I guess you so. should yeah you should because you see what may happen is that your rental contract may not even include the two month penalty that you're talking about yeah. um, so if that's the case don't just accept your landlord's representation because if it's not in the contract then you're not bound by it um, so if there is somehow there is some other law by charging municipality that that, uh, that requires tenants to pay two months which again I highly doubt then that could be your o- uh, only penalty and that is the two month and nothing else Joy good to have you on hope the advice was useful and good luck with that move to dubai thank you right then that's joy on the line there now um let's go to the text line uh, when you came into the middle of this afternoon we did our weekly vat update which had <laughs> rather more information than we expected this week as is always the case the questions come in thick and fast pretty much at the last minute let's go to She'll claire squeeze, yeah, squeeze, squeeze, yeah, squeeze mm. a couple more in before the end of the 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 hour Ludmilla, I'm going back to VAT. Burton says, uh, will landlords pay VAT on rental returns? Um, okay, in short, yes, but let me clarify. It's you're not paying, landlords not paying uh, income or, or rental return because otherwise it can be perceived as an income tax. This is not an income tax. The landlords have to collect for only for commercial properties, not for residential properties, but for commercial properties, landlords will have to collect the 5% off the annual uh, lease, r- uh, lease amount uh, for the government. But that rate has to be paid by the tenant and then collected by the landlord. Um, so it's not you know, it's not a tax on the income. It's more just a sort of a collection from the tenant. It has to then pass it on. Yes, and yes. pass it on. Um, and another one on that uh, from Zuhaib. Does VAT apply to remittances in any way? Are the banks and exchange houses expected to collect VAT from their customers? Are we all going to get taxed for sending money home now? 
there's not enough clarity right now in the regulations or I guess in the guidelines uh, to answer that question definitively, but um, there is a mention that certain financial services will be exempt or will be subject to the 0% rate. Um, so, I mean, in kind of, and there isn't anything about the remittance, remittance tax. Uh, if you think about it, this is all about, it's called a VAT, a value-added tax. So sending your own money abroad, you're not really adding any value. So uh, logically speaking, they should not be subject uh, to VAT, but I guess you know maybe certain financial transactions, depending on how they're classified, could be subject to something. But you know this is this is an area we need to uh, to continue to monitor, and we'll update as more details become available. But in general, VAT is not a, you know it's not a tax or remittance tax. So uh, I, I highly doubt that rem- sending money home will actually be subject to any any other additional charges. We'll have that update next week, just after four o'clock uh, on uh, Monday afternoon. Let's talk to Sam. Oh, who's left us, unfortunately. I'll tell you what, I'll just put Sam's question to you. Uh, most leaves have a two, uh, sorry, most leases have a two-month penalty for rent if contract is ended early. But if you lose your job or have to leave the country for some reason, I guess beyond uh, your you know, reasonable control, are courts sympathetic, Sam is asking, generally speaking? Well, co- courts will basically enforce the contract. So whatever it is that parties agree to in the contract. So they won't, right. w- they will not choose sides on the basis of, you know, I mean, I guess someone's, uh, someone's financial situation. However, it certainly is an argument that, uh, that uh, could be made. So, uh, for example, when the penalty is drafted uh, in uh, you sort of in, in the view of the court, perhaps as being unreasonable or too burdensome, the courts may be able to parry down. So, for example, if a two-month penalty sounds pretty reasonable and, and common, so it's unlikely the court will want to pare that down um, any further. But let's say if there's a six-month penalty, so the chances are the court would be, for example, under, especially under those circumstances, mm. more sympathetic. Uh, now, also, if, for example, you know that the landlord has found another tenant and then that tenant is ready to come in and uh, you know, take the property right away, so there isn't really a two-month gap uh, in the rental, so therefore the landlord is not really losing money you could make an argument that the two-month penalty is actually what's called liquidated damages but the liquid damages are generally enforced unless they are unreasonable or unsubstantiated so if you could uh, argue that to the court which is this is liquidated damages but the uh, the landlord is not actually losing money because it has a tenant that is ready to step in tomorrow so therefore it's exorbitant the court can pare it down to um, you know to a lesser amount Okay, one more question. Let's just go to Bilal's question here. Very quickly, Ludmilla, I know you can answer this reasonably quickly. My landlord sent me a 12-month notice to uh, evacuate, vacate the premises for selling reasons now. Until now, he can't sell. Can he force me to leave if he can't sell? Uh, you can challenge it. Uh, the landlord cannot physically force you to leave unless there's a court order that re- uh, that allows him to evict you. Uh, so you could you could challenge that eviction notice on the basis that in fact the purpose of the notice has not been fulfilled, which is the selling of the property, um, and then leave it to the court to decide whether you, whether you know, that notice you know, th- there's a requirement of actually having property being sold. There's a little bit of a gray area right now, uh, but generally speaking, uh, it's if the notice was properly served and the landlord has evidence 
to show that truly the property is up for sale and they are trying to sell it and then the court can issue an order evicting you even if the property has not been sold. However, if the landlord does not have any uh, evidence um, that they were e- they even tried to sell the property, then you could argue that this was used um, as misrepresentation or the whole idea of selling the property was used as misrepresentation and on that basis the court would uh, might reject uh, uh, validation of this notice. So it really is up to the evidence that parties will present. Yamalava is from Yamalava and Plethka. We've yet to see you stumped. We didn't do it today. I'm glad to say your record is still You're 100%. Me. I will not. <laughs> You're back here tomorrow actually with David McKenzie on Career Connect. But for today, uh, Ludmilla, thank you very much. Nice to see you. Thank you.